Well, the context of John chapter 6 is sometime later what had been happening sometime before. Well, John chapter 5 tells us Jesus healed a crippled man by the pool of Bethesda. And this caused controversy. Why? Because of when Jesus healed the man beside the pool of Bethesda. He did it on the Sabbath. So people were grumpy about that. You can't do that kind of thing on a Sabbath. In John chapter 6 verse 1 we read that it was some time after this. And no doubt during that time in between the chapters, Jesus had continued to do amazing things. Healing so many people, doing signs and wonders. Because, we read in verse 2 of chapter 6, a great crowd of people followed him. Why? Because they saw the signs he had performed by healing those who were ill. I don't know what aches and pains you have this morning, what illnesses and issues you have, but I'm sure you have something going on because that's life, isn't it? That's what life is like. And I'm sure if you lived at the time of John chapter 6 and you lived anywhere close to the Sea of Galilee, you would be there. And so you can understand why there were so many flocks of people come to be with Jesus. You can understand the crowd, why it's so busy. Because you would be there. Because Jesus can do the impossible. Jesus would heal anything and anyone. Well, you know the story that follows. You probably know it incredibly well, but I'm going to tell it to you again anyway. Because God tells us this story again anyway. It's a famous story and it's repeated in each one of the four Gospels. I find that really interesting. Bear in mind that Jesus' birth is only recounted in two of the Gospels. But this episode, the feeding of the multitude, is in each one of the four Gospel accounts. And that fact alone ought to suggest to us that this is a key piece of information that God wants us to know. So that we can understand who Jesus is. What Jesus offers us. Jesus feeding the multitude. Jesus doing the impossible. It's just that, isn't it? It's an impossible thing that happens. Philip knew that. Andrew knew that. All the other disciples knew it was impossible, didn't they? We're told in verse 10 that there, was, there were about 5,000 men. And you could probably tell me, Dom, it was probably more. Why? Because that's 5,000 men. That wasn't counting the women and the children. So it might have been triple that. We don't know. But an awful lot of people. There was also a load of people because it was around the time of the Jewish festival Passover. That was one of the times in the year where people from all over Judea would come to Jerusalem to have this festival to the Lord there. So all these people were there. And Jesus says to his disciples, before all these people, says to Philip, where are we going to find food for these people to eat? Have you ever invited someone out for a meal? And you say, have whatever you want, go for it, this is my treat. And then it gets to the end of the meal, you look at the bill, check that everything's in order, and then you reach for your wallet or purse and you get a sinking feeling in your heart because it's not where you thought it was. Then you have to have a very awkward and apologetic chat with the person you plan to treat and say, I'm really sorry, can you pick up the bill? It's really embarrassing, I've done that before. And it's a bit like what Jesus is doing here. He's lumping his disciples in it. 
He's the one who's been doing all the healing. He's the one who's attracting this massive crowd. And he's like, can you fetch the bill this time, please? They're like, what are we going to do? How on earth are we going to feed all these people? So many people. And Philip realized it's a ridiculous question. It's an impossible task. He responds, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Philip is obviously pretty good at mental arithmetic and he's totting things up in his head and he concludes it would cost more than 10 grand in today's money for each person to get just a breadstick. Absolutely impossible. Jesus, you're being ridiculous. But Jesus not only does the impossible, he invites us to do the impossible with him. Andrew brings a little lad's little lunch of five barley loaves and two fish to Jesus and says, how far are they going to go among so many? He's like, this is all we've got, Jesus. But what's the point in even showing you it? Because it's nothing compared to the need. That's when Jesus steps up and takes charge. He tells the stressed out disciples to get everyone sitting down. They can manage that, can't they? Just tell everyone to sit down. And when everyone else is sitting down, picture that. Everyone's sitting down on these clumps of grass out in the wilderness beside the Sea of Galilee. But there's one person standing up, isn't there? Amongst this sea of people, Jesus alone stands up. And he takes these loaves into his amazing hands and he lifts it to the heavens and he gives thanks and then he gives it out. And he gives it out. And he gives it out. And it keeps on going until everyone has had as much as they could eat. Then Jesus did the same with the fish. These tiny fish, they're not big fish that you would buy from the fishmongers if you're posh and you would have it baked and it would be like a salmon you might have at Christmas. That's not what we're talking about. This is tiny. This is like the equivalent of, you know, those little packets of ketchup you get from McDonald's? It's just something to make your braid, something to dip your chips in. That's what it is. Just these two little ketchup packets, basically. And Jesus feeds the thousands with them. He distributes it to everyone. It just keeps on going and going. It doesn't run out until everyone has had more than enough. There was enough for the seconds and thirds. And there were even leftovers. How many leftovers? Let's check the children. Oh, yeah, 12. Brilliant. Why was it 12? brilliant spot on because there are 12 disciples one for each of the doubting disciples to say trust me trust me it's such a brilliant story and for a little while I want us to focus on what it means because it's not enough just knowing the story and thinking oh that's great we want to know what it means why are we told this why does God want us to know this and let's think about what it means for us today 2,000 years after it happened let's think about what it meant for the crowd let's think about what it meant for the disciples and what did it mean for that boy so firstly of course each of these points will have something to tell us but I want us firstly to consider why we are told this story all this time after it happened why do you need to know this? Why is this in our Bibles? Jesus did so many amazing things. Why is this included? Not just once, not just twice, not just three times, but four times. God really wants you to know this story and understand it. Well, in verse 14, this miracle is called a sign. 
You see signs all around, don't you? You know what signs do. They point to something. You tell them, don't go in there or push bar to open. They give you information. They point to something beyond themselves. And this miracle it is, but it's described as a sign as verse 14. And the Apostle John, as he writes his gospel, points out all these signs that Jesus did because Jesus didn't do amazing things to dazzle and amaze as entertainment. All these things that Jesus performed were to point to who he is. We read in John chapter 20, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That is why you're told this story again and again and again. It's so that you would know that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one full of life, who gives life. And by believing in his name, you can have his life. We're meant to see that Jesus is the Lord. We're meant to connect the feeding of the multitude with what the Lord did in the Old Testament. When the Lord brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, led them like a shepherd through the wilderness, that's when the Lord gave them the bread of angels, the bread from heaven, manna. We're going to be thinking about that in a little while. Because the Lord led them into the desert far enough that their resources, the Israelites' resources, had run out. They were lifting up their water bottles and it was only a drip and they'd be like that and nothing. They'd shake it, it was empty. It was when the bread that they'd made in a hurry back in Egypt, it was all gone. They'd probably licked all the packaging to get all the crumbs off. There was nothing left. Jesus had led them to the point where they had run out of their supplies. What were they to do? When they had rumbling stomachs, they had little ones on their shoulders crying for breakfast, what were they to do? Would the Israelites trust in the one who had saved them, or were they going to grumble and longingly look back to Egypt? That was the question in the wilderness, and we're meant to put two and two together and realise it's exactly the same question in John chapter 6. Later on in John 6, Jesus says it's not about bread. This sign is pointing to something far more important than bread. It's about the living bread, the bread of heaven. It's about who Jesus is. It's not about bread that will leave you hungry again in a little while. This story is about Jesus who declares that he is the I am of the Old Testament, the bread of heaven, the bread that comes down from heaven to give life to the world. The Exodus story is about the Lord being the bread of life. Would the Israelites trust him? And John 6, the feeding of the thousands, is about Jesus declaring he is the bread of life. So then you and me, after all this time has passed, why are we told this story? It's so that we would realise that Jesus is the bread of heaven, the bread of life. He is the one we need. He is the one who is soul satisfying, never to leave us hungry again. To have that contentment of knowing who you are, knowing who God is, knowing the purpose of your life, knowing joy and peace. There's a contentment there. 
like nothing else. And it's all through knowing Jesus, the bread of life. He's the one we need. More than food, more than water, more than air. We need Jesus. That's what this is saying to us. But what did it mean for the crowd who were there? Let's think about that. I guess this was a way in which Jesus could communicate this deep truth that he's the one that we need to everyone at one time. I won't ask you to put your hand up and confess whether you've watched the life of Brian, but I have. And there's a scene in it where the crowds are supposedly listening to Jesus. And Brian, who's not the Messiah, he's in the crowd somewhere at the back in this vast sea of people. And all the people are straining to hear what the Messiah is saying. And he's talking about the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are those who sorrow, for they will be comforted. But Brian and the rest at the back, they can't hear properly, which leads them to start squabbling with each other which isn't the typical way we imagine these Bible stories, is it? But that kind of thing must have happened. It must have been chaotic. There must have been children being noisy and men messing around and women checking Instagram or the equivalent of it back in the day. In the life of Brian, this rabble at the back mishears Jesus and thinks, he says, blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> blessed are the cheese. Then this man, looking very proper, says, yes, but it's allegorically you see, it doesn't literally mean cheesemakers. It can be applied to all dairy product manufacturers. That kind of thing probably did happen. Jesus must have been misunderstood at times. And I think Monty Python do a good job of bringing home the reality of how it must have been. And it makes me wonder, how could Jesus get his message of life, of salvation, and who he is to everyone there in that crowd? Well, how about stomachs starting to rumble, panic setting in and rippling through all the crowd, people whispering under their breath, where's the best place to buy grub in Jerusalem or around about, getting their money out to check how much they've got. But then everyone told to sit down by the disciples. Don't worry, just sit down. Then you see a lone figure standing up, serving the multitude. Jesus lifts the bread to heaven, gives thanks, and everyone can see it's a tiny amount. And yet Jesus distributes it to the disciples who then give it out to the people around them. And it doesn't stop until everyone is fed. How about that for a way of communicating that Jesus is the one we all need at such a setting? You can't mishear it. The crowd could see that the feast flowed from Jesus. The news would circulate of how it had all started as this little boy's packed lunch, which had been given to Jesus. It's this incredibly visual and experiential way of Jesus communicate, communicating the truth that he is the one you and I need. Jesus gives life. If I have Jesus, I have enough. How will the world today know who Jesus is? Maybe you can chew on that. But for now, I want us to continue thinking about what it meant for the disciples. These poor guys who followed Jesus and Jesus led them into such deep waters. They didn't know what was going to happen next. And they didn't know what Jesus was going to ask of them next. Jesus asked Philip, where are we going to buy bread for all these people to eat? And I can relate to Philip. Can you relate to Philip? 
I'm sure you can. I would probably respond in pretty much the same way he did. Like Philip, I would consider the logistics in terms of what I can do, the resources we have, what we can afford. In other words, I don't immediately think of what Jesus can do. I'm sure you were far more godly. I'm sure that you would instinctively say something like Elijah did when he was asked, can these bones live? What was Elijah's response? Lord, you know. That's a far better response to Philip's and probably mine. Lord, you know. That ought to be our answer, but I confess I'm more like Philip. And of course, in a Bible study, I would give the correct answer. I would. I know, I know the right answer. But when it comes down to a crisis, my mind doesn't automatically go, ah, but Jesus, but Jesus does the impossible. That's what we ought to say. For the crowd, it was a sign. For the disciples, this was a test. John chapter 6, verse 6 says, Jesus asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Following Jesus isn't easy. I would love everyone here to put your lives into the hands of Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to be yours. But I need to warn you that following Jesus isn't easy. Not only will you have an enemy who's out to get you, following Jesus is also difficult because the Lord that we're following, the Lord who loves us, also tests us to see what's in our hearts. Again, this is just like Israel in the wilderness many years before. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law by Moses as the Israelites were about to enter the promised land. Moses sums it all up in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 16 to 18, we read this. He, that's the Lord, gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to, to humble and test you, so that in the end, it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember, the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. It talks about manna again. Why did the Lord send manna? To test his people. When the Israelites were grumbling, thinking they would be better off back in Egypt, the Lord graciously gave them bread from heaven. So they woke up in the morning and they saw what looked like cornflakes lying on the ground. That's what it looked like, we're told. And it tasted like honey. So it was crunchy nut cornflakes. And they didn't know what it was, so they called it Watsits. Isn't that amazing? Tasted like crunchy nut. They called it Watsits, manna. That, it means, what is it? What is it? Watsits. And they could grind it up, make bread, or they could roast it in the fire. But that's what the Lord did in order to test them. Isn't that interesting? Both in John 6 and in Deuteronomy, talking about the manna in the wilderness, it's about the Lord testing his people. It's the same lesson. Would Philip look in trust to Jesus and his limitless resources, or would Philip look at himself in doubt. They're the two options. Children of God, who are you looking at today? Are you looking at Jesus in faith, knowing the impossible is possible with him? Or are you looking at yourself, 
your own resources full of doubt, saying it's impossible. Serving Jesus can only be done in the strength of Jesus, or else we're going to fall flat on our faces. Lastly, and you'll be glad that it's lastly, let's think about the boy. What did it mean for him? This lad brought his lunch, it was probably packed by his mum. He saw the need, and it was a great need, and he simply brought what he could. He brought what he had. What would it have been like to be him, to bring your little pack lunch to Jesus, and then to see your puny little barley loaves and your tiny fish feed all those people? Apparently barley loaves is the food for the poorest of the poor. Don't think of nice, fluffy, soft bread. Think of rivita, dry. It's the poorest of the poor. This boy gave it away. He placed it in Jesus' amazing hands. And yet, remember that this boy was far better off having given what he had to Jesus than if he hadn't. He had more afterwards than he had to begin with. When the Lord called Moses, Moses said, I'm 80 years old. What on earth do you want to do with me? But the Lord insisted, I'm choosing you, Moses. And Moses complained even more. I can't speak very well. Choose someone else. And the Lord said, Moses, I'm choosing you. I created your mouth. I'm going to give you the words to say. I'm sending you. Jeremiah protested the Lord's calling on his life. He argued, don't send me. I'm too young. Isaiah he was undone in the presence of Jesus and thought he's completely useless. He says, I'm too sinful. I'm unclean and I come from a people with unclean lips. We're very good at making excuses. The Lord can't use me because of this, that and the other. I'm very good at making excuses. Moses was too old, Jeremiah too young, Isaiah too sinful. Whatever it is, when we look at ourselves, we know we don't have it. We don't have enough. We're not up to the task. And that is true. That is as much true as it is that that little boy's packed lunch was enough to feed those thousands. But see the boy who knows that what he has isn't enough, but he places it in Jesus' hands and it becomes enough because Jesus is enough. Remember the Samaritan woman? She had all the excuses too. Why are you speaking to me, Jesus? I'm a woman and a Samaritan. You should have nothing to do with me. And she was ashamed of her past. But Jesus takes us as we are. We give ourselves to him. And with us, he does the impossible. The Samaritan woman placed her life into Jesus' amazing hands and the whole town of Sychar discovered eternal life in Jesus Christ, all because of that precious woman who entrusted her life to Jesus. And that's the note that we should end on. Because that's what it all comes down to. This boy with his meagre rations just gave what he had to Jesus and it was used to do the impossible. Here are three questions. Two you can probably answer confidently and a third which no one can. First, who are you? Second, what do you have? And third, what could Jesus do with you?